This is an RNZ podcast. Saunter believes tomorrow's clash could even eclipse the 2011 Rugby World Cup final. And the All Blacks are the world champions for the second time. The 2011 Rugby World Cup final saw over 2 million uh, local viewing audience and I think cumulatively there was over 50 million globally. Numbers that could soon be humbled by the FIFA Women's World Cup. That was News Hub at 6 last Monday night, the night before the FIFA Women's World Cup semi-final between Spain and Sweden became the most watched around the world sports event ever held here. Now sadly, our football ferns peaked too soon in this World Cup when they beat Norway in Game 1 on Day 1. Wilkinson's in the middle, Wilkinson! New Zealand won, Norway nil! And even though it was all downhill and out after that for New Zealand, Kiwi fans still bought into the World Cup big time, making it bigger than the Rugby World Cup for crowds and in our media. And our sporting media, not normally moved to mention women's football much, suddenly couldn't stop. Last weekend, the tournament even moved long-time News Talk ZB sportscaster Darcy Waldegrave to unleash Kipling-esque emotions on his all-sport breakfast show. All respect to the losers. And as of midnight Sunday week, only one team will experience the unadulterated joy of ascending their sporting Sagamata, or Everest as the colonising empire called her. Darcy seemed to be saying that in this case it really was the taking part that counted as much as the winning. There is still disappointment to be swallowed in this event, still the gut-wrenching reality of falling short. For one team to stand above all, all must be present. Respect to the losers. Without you, the tournament is nothing. Intense stuff, and in a literal sense, the losers were a big part of the story as well. All the former winners of the Women's World Cup were out by the quarter-final stage, and that included the incumbent champs from the US, whose official advert didn't date too well. What's it going to take to stop this US team? Good luck with that. Well, the answer to what it would take to stop them was Sweden on penalties. Now in turn, Spain then turned them over at New Zealand's Women's World Cup finale at Eden Park on Tuesday. You must be proud of the battle out there though and the way that you did fight back so quickly and, and put yourselves in with such a good chance. I mean, even though you only had sort of five minutes left in the match. Uh, yeah, maybe it's uh, easy to look that way after, but right now it's just feel like shit. And while the biggest teams getting knocked out early was a novelty, there was another significant first when newbies Morocco took on France in the round of 16. Teammate Nuhaila Benzina became the first player to wear a hijab at a World Cup, signifying yet another step forward as they challenged traditional norms. We wanted to prove ourselves that we too can play football at a professional level. And on Sky's coverage, much of it available for free as well on Prime TV or streamed for free by Stuff, former football fern Rosie White pointed out New Zealand could be proud to have played a part in that. You know, that is a, a huge statement um, and, you know, it's breaking traditional norms. It's, it's creating a space for people that have never had a platform like that before. Um, so I think it's pretty special to, to see that and, you know, for us to be able to host that um, is, is pretty, pretty epic. Now in Australia, another surprise packet was Jamaica. The so-called reggae girls knocked out Brazil and also had the most mothers in the squad. Three kids, me with one, I'm like, nope, never again. But then she with three. I, I think we're just showing that to more than just your kids. I think the world sees that. Thank you, sis. You're welcome. All right, love ya. 
So the Women's World Cup certainly delivered different sorts of stories for our media, and even those who really don't care about those sorts of narratives could also have a good time at the Games. The amount of things they had there for the children, dartboard where you could throw big sort of Velcro soccer balls against it. Oh, and the, and the fans too. I mean, the, the, the Swedish, you know, went to the oh, Swedes, had the big Oompa band there and uh, yeah, all the, the Viking stuff. It was, it was world class. It was, I mean, it was great. Now, no major event goes off quite without a hitch, and in our case, the deadly Queen Street shootings on the morning of the opening day shut down the fan zone. The Dutch weren't happy with a rock-hard cricket wicket on their Tauranga training pitch, and at least some of the Spanish squad found Palmerston North a bit too dull. And this week, football fans captain Ali Riley revealed that they were nearly late for their opener against Norway because their bus was stuck in Auckland's traffic. But even Wellington's bus-tastrophic public transport made good news for once by, by and large, standing up to the fares free surges on game days, according to Newstalk ZB. Metlink has thanked staff for their work during the tournament, which wrapped up in the capital last week. Fares were free and we saw a phenomenal take-up of public transport as a consequence. Back on the 8th of August, Newstalk ZB was reporting this... The ninth Women's Football World Cup has become the best attended ever with the crowd at last night's match between Sweden and the USA taking the total of spectators to almost 1.4 million. The average attendance so far this year is almost 27,000, 4,500 more than in France four years ago. The record crowd for a football match in New Zealand, women's or men's, has been broken three times in Auckland since the opening of the tournament. And in Australia, it was the biggest game in town for their media as the Matildas went deep into the tournament. Matildas, 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 Matildas. Shall I stop now? <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely incredible. It's Matildas fever. It's going to be the biggest TV audience of the year. Some say it could be the biggest TV audience of all time. And it was for that epic quarterfinal against France, which was settled by the longest ever penalty shootout in any World Cup match. Wherever you're watching... You have got the best ticket to the most sensational drama. Can you imagine the scenes and the big screens in Brisbane, Melbourne, Perth, Sydney? And an enraptured crowd here. If Hunt scores, it's history for the Matildas. No! Saved by Jerome! I simply do not believe that. Well, they made it in the end, and the Guardian's Australian sports editor Joe Kahn said that meant they had also upended an established hierarchy of broadcast sport across the Tasman. It's just, it's just incomprehensible. Like I still cannot understand how a, a men's Australian rules footy game had women's football on TVs at the same time. Like it's just, it just, it doesn't make sense to me. Yet in Australia before the tournament, the broadcaster Channel 7 was accused of underselling it and lukewarm commercial sponsors were warned that they might miss out on a shared national moment, and some did. So in the end, thrills, spills, skills, big crowds, lots of stuff for the kids and free bus rides to the stadiums, what's not to like? It's boring. It's, you can't have 90 minutes plus 30 minutes and score no goals and not core it. But you can go, oh, it had moments of tension and excitement, all that usual stuff. But at the end of the day, it's dull. And what saves it is the penalty shootout. As no, you well disagree. know, I'm, disagree. I'm not... Disagree, disagree, disagree. 
was Mike Hosking on his breakfast show on Monday and his sports panellists, TVNZ's Guy Havelt and Andrew Saville, couldn't convince him that the bulging stadiums proved that New Zealand really had embraced women's football. We're caught up in this because of what it is, not because it's women's sport or women's football or football, it's just an event that we've got... I, I think yes, yeah. because we were co-hosts. Exactly. But you, you take away the fact that it's females or whatever... The, I think the standard of football, I think the football's been outstanding. Yeah. The, dra- the drama's totally. been outstanding. Mm. And Mike Hosking was also unsure whether it was really Kiwis who were filling the stands at all. Fans. People have come. You know, people have made a thing of it, a holiday of it. And if you come to the country, whether it be here or Australia, you buy a bunch of tickets, you're going to every game no matter what, aren't you? I mean, you know, the same people are turning up yeah, to game one, game two, game three. Japan versus the Netherlands the other day at Eden Park, forty odd thousand. Yeah, but you're not taking in the multi. You're not taking in the multicultural makeup of the New Zealand population or indeed the Australian population. That's fair. That's fair. But I still didn't think that there would be as many sellouts as there have been. Well, these days, more than one in four New Zealanders living here were born outside this country, possibly in countries with more interest in football than you'd find here. Though, does it really matter to anyone other than Mike Hosking what kind of Kiwis were actually in those record-breaking crowds? As TVNZ's Guy Havelt pointed out, there were fears about empty seats and a lack of enthusiasm right up until the football ferns set it alight on opening day on the 20th of July. And for them, ZB's Darcy Waldegrave said this on Monday. But I'm interested in the people that thought it was going to be a mess, I thought it was going to be a train wreck, thought we'd fall on our faces. How are you feeling now? And as Tuesday's semi-final loomed large, the last World Cup match on our turf, some were even suggesting an Anzac bid for the Men's World Cup, another level again as a media and a commercial event. Though ZB's Darcy Waldegrave didn't think that was very likely, though his listeners were still ambitious. Texter suggested maybe we could switch up Tour de France for the Tour de Tirol here in New Zealand. Could work. Hey, there you go. Just extend the Tour of Southland. North. Considerably. This is News Talk ZB. Darcy. It remains to be seen if a tour to Southland really would be a compelling proposition for world cycling. Probably not in the winter, though. But among those arguing that the FIFA Women's World Cup was a revolutionary event for New Zealand was TVNZ's John Campbell. That it is being led by a FIFA product is truly unexpected. FIFA are revolutionary in the same way that Ronald McDonald is a vegan. And even FIFA Secretary-General Fatma Samora told a live debate in Auckland this week FIFA is a middle-aged European man riding a limousine around and stealing money. And around the world, not everyone was paying attention, even in some football-mad countries. On 9 to noon a fortnight ago, Catherine Ryan asked correspondent Daniel Schweimler in Buenos Aires whether the cup was making a mark in Argentina's media. And when we do see any reference to the women's football, it tends to be the kind of thing that um, trivialises what they've been doing. Team Yilma Rodriguez of the Argentine team, she's appeared in the media simply because it was spotted when she came on the other day that she had a tattoo on her leg, Cristiano Ronaldo, on her leg rather than Leo Messi. She's got Maradona on the other leg, so that's fine. Uh, but she's been forced to defend herself in public. Why Cristiano Ronaldo and not the great legend of Argentine, male legend of Argentine football, Leo Messi. Oh dear, still more interest in the women's players' appearances rather than the way they play. So, what legacy will the biggest media event ever hosted in this country leave on the media here 
and around the world. I asked Australian Associated Press reporter Ben Mackay, who's based in Wellington but was at the last Women's World Cup in France and will be at tonight's final in Sydney, and senior stuff sports journalist Zoe George, who specialises in reporting on equity and equality in sport. Well, Zoe, uh, you were on RNZ's Nights programme just before the World Cup kickoff. You said, look, ticket sales will pick up, Kiwis will see it and they'll come, uh, they'll get behind it, everything's going to be fine. Are you feeling vindicated? Because turns out you were right. <laughs> of course I was right. Uh, it was wonderful to see the support that this tournament and not just the football ferns, but every team has received from New Zealanders and Australians. And it also helped the fact that the football ferns won that first game. Mm. It started the tournament in a really positive way. We just saw more and more people get on, on board. Well, Ben, uh, read a story just before the tournament kicked off. And oh, I know what this one's going to be. Papers, yeah. uh, if Australia has World Cup fever, New Zealand may have caught a cold. An enthusiasm <laughs> gap has emerged between the two co-hosts for the tournament. That was one of yours, I think. Yeah, but, that, was, that was tough words, wasn't it? Uh, but I mean, it, but it, was, it was correct at that point, right? It, yeah, it was mm. a moment in time. And I think it, it, it was borne out as well in terms of overall attendance figures. You know, some of the matches in Hamilton and Dunedin were, you know, not, not as well attended. But, I mean, you could argue that Costa Rica, Zambia wasn't going to pull a crowd no matter where you put it. Now, you were at the tournament four years ago in France 2019. Now, France were the world men's champions. They won the World Cup in Russia the year before. Yep. Um, was the vibe very different? Is it, has this really taken it to It a was level? a very interesting, a very different tournament just because, there. It, first of all, it was summer, so it was lovely from that perspective. All the European teams didn't have to plan their travel months in advance. You know, you, you, the first Netherlands game wasn't especially well attended, but by the time they'd reached the final, there were hordes of them. They'd all gather in the public squares before because they'd just catch a bus to these matches down from ne- the Netherlands. Four years down the track is actually quite a long quite a lot of time. So, you know, it, it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The tournament ended for us on Tuesday with the one semi-final. Do you think people will, in the end, sort of media-wise, around the world, be pretty much thinking of this as actually an Australian event in the end? <laughs> I mean, there have been so many rich storylines from New Zealand. And, and for me, I mean, the moment of the tournament has to be Hannah Wilkinson's goal. Just that incredible sound from Eden Park. I mean, I've only lived here for five years, but I've never heard Eden Park like that. Things. I mean, the US were based in New Zealand as well. There's been heaps going on in New Zealand. So if you ask an, Aust- an Australian in Australia, they'd be tempted to say it was just an Australian tournament, but I, I don't think so. Some There are interesting stories, like, for example, the first player ever to wear a hijab uh, you know, in, in a World Cup uh, and all the way through into the, the knockout rounds for, for Morocco. Stuff like that you're obviously never going to get in the men's game. But mm. beyond that, does the coverage reflect that it is somehow a different kind of game, a different structure? The coverage is slightly different because women's sport often is driven by social issues. And so a lot of the social issues have come to the fore, broader issues that we can talk about too. Now, you know, and this I hope is something that we continue post-World Cup as well. So things like pay. And prize money equity. All that money that was meant to go to the players is being fed through their federations and then through to the players. But there is a lack of trust between players and some of their federations. Look at South Africa, uh, look at the, the Falcons in Nigeria, look at Jamaica, look at Canada. All of these teams, these women, have had an exper- you know, experienced inequality when it comes to money. Nigeria haven't been paid for two years. And then there's the broader issues around abuse as well, with Haiti, for example. Having those social issues there, and then FIFA going, 
no, you can't wear the rainbow armband. You know, queer culture is a huge part of women's sport. And to say no, well, then we just find other ways to protest. And to see the football ferns captain, Ali Riley, paint her nails with the trans flag was just really beautiful to see. But is that the downside of the thing being such a success on the pitch? That, that'll get drowned out once you've got a sports tournament at the point where the most, most people are. Well, let's not forget attention. that the US won back-to-back um, tournaments 2019 in the midst of a huge pay fight with, mm. with their federation. So, I mean, I, I went back through the history of some of my coverage for AAP for the Matildas. The first story I wrote was in 2014. It was a, a crisp 108-word uh, match report um, from a match, yeah, <laughs> match they played um, against the Netherlands. Um, the next story I wrote about the Matildas was the ABC cutting free-to-air coverage of the league. So, I mean, like, these are the sort of issues that sort of roll around. In the re- lead-up to the tournament, I read about Channel 7 host broadcast being accused of underselling it or not being all that interested. Sponsors being warned, look, if this takes off, you'll miss out. Was that the case? People weren't really sure how it would go. I mean, Optus is reported to... Pa- Optus was the main broadcaster, so Telco, like Spark Sport, they on-sold a package of matches to Channel 7, the free-to-air broadcaster, that strategy being get more eyeballs, get people sucked in, and they might want to buy the whole coverage. It's reported that Optus paid $20 million and that package of games went to seven for $4 million, which must be the Ooh. biggest bargain in the history of Australian sports broadcasting now. Given the numbers, that the, the Matildas uh, match against France was the most watched match in, I think, 18 years of any, sorry, most watched television program of any sort of thing. I, I'm not sure what the New Zealand numbers are, but like these are genuine nation building moments. Mm. Yeah, and Zoe, your organisation stuff uh, streamed some of the Sky coverage for free. Um, so yeah, we're pretty accustomed now, I guess, premium sports events will be for subscribers on Sky Sport if you want the lot, but Prime mm. TV screened a lot on uh, on free-to-air TV uh, and, crucially, the Ferns' three matches, as it <laughs> turns out. Uh, but was do you think that's, that's a good mix? You know, I think that combination of commercial and then free-to-air is really important because we want to bring new audiences to women's sport products. Um, and sport is for all, not just for some. So we want to make it accessible, affordable, visible. And if we don't make it visible, then it's just going to fall off a cliff again. So by providing these two avenues, I think that's really important. Now, I'm really, I have to say, I'm super proud of Stuff's coverage. We had our uh, FIFA Women's World Cup hub and the team have gone hard out. It was fantastic. It was brilliant. And most of that coverage is led by men in my team, which makes me doubly proud Mm. to know that we've got male allies who believe in the coverage of women's sport and the value of women's sport. It it started heaps before the tournament as well. Like from the draw all the way through, there was so much. Like if you want to know anything about the football ferns, it was in there. It (laughs) was fantastic. I'm pleased. Well, we're doing the same thing for the All Blacks during the Rugby World Cup. uh, And we're also going... Sorry, I'm less interested. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But we're also covering... WXV, which is the mini women's rugby world cup coming to New Zealand in October and early November, which will be epic. I can't wait to watch the Black Ferns. Millions of people have tuned in, either whether it's through Sky or or via our content. So what is the commitment going forward and what is the strategy going forward to ensure we capitalise on this wave? So... We need all media organisations to make a commitment to women's sport, uh, equity and equality in our coverage. So even if they're not the rights holders or directly benefit, you'd be looking for... Everyone has a role to play. And it shouldn't just matter whether it's, uh, you know a New Zealand team that's uh, uh, you know playing it it could be that we're going to commit to covering the Central Pulse this season and netball or whatever it is making sure Farah Palmer Cup 
and rugby. At the moment, we're currently sitting for all women's sports coverage in the sports coverage ecosphere. We're looking at about 28% overall, which is a huge improvement from what it was several years ago or even three and a half years ago where it sat at 12%. So we are seeing a commitment from media organisations but we can always do more, right? Yeah, Sky TV, uh, before the Tokyo Olympics, I think we did a program about them. They had decided a strategy that they called side-by-side, saying we will try and devote equal um, coverage. So I'd that say- was that was their strategy. But in Australia, Ben, look, this has gone a whole other level in terms yeah. of the cut-through. Is it going to be the same thing? I mean, just to speak about, about my company as well, I mean, Australian Associated Press, I mean, we've made the decision that we'll cover every A-League women's match in addition to every A-League men's match, and we have done for some time. And that's a news agency that's nationwide, so that will be that's fed right. to mm-hmm. all online media newspapers that yeah, all of Yeah, all of our, our subscribers get that. We do the same for the AFLW, which is the you know the, the women's competition inside the AFL, and NRLW, as well as you know devoting extra resources to women's sport w- w- wherever it's needed. And I mean, like, it just makes sense. It, like, this shows there is the ap- appetite, and you know, you know, there will there will obviously be a drop off from the highs of this tournament, but you know, from my perspective, it'd be great to have somebody else apart from me and <laughs> Phil Rollo, the um, Wellington stuff reporter in the Phoenix press box come <laughs> kick off for the A-League women in October. <laughs> and just to explain to listeners, AFL is a form of rugby played on a circle <laughs> with too many we don't have time. for some We reason, don't have time to get into that. They don't have sleeves on the shirts, don't, don't understand that. But yeah, that's a, that's a whole other story. Um, Zoe, you know, you talked about some of the, you know, the issues that are off-field things that are significant and mm. important, um, social issues, equity issues and so on. But also, is there a danger of celebrating this and perhaps ignoring uh, you know, some of the you know, downside. I mean, FIFA is a monster organisation mm. which has been in the news for years uh, for, for the wrong reasons, possibly reforming itself a bit now. But I was thinking of one story of yours, for example, about Hamilton getting money from FIFA um, as a host city and spending quite a large amount of it on a sculpture, which is money that could have gone as other amounts of that funding did to actual development of the game for women and girls in that region? Mm, so that money actually came through the Lotteries Commission. So oh. it was New Zealand public money. Oh, big uh, So each of the host nation, host cities got a pot of money from the government to help promote FIFA or to empower, quote-unquote, girls and women. And Hamilton spent, out of the $500,000 they got, they spent $170,000 on this ginormous sculpture, which they believe would inspire girls and women to play football. And their reasoning was that if even one girl had her photo taken in front of the ginormous ball and was inspired to play football, then it's all worth it. Well, the local federation, uh, Waikato Bay of Plenty Football, they only received $50,000 for the development programs of girls and women. So, yes, we can celebrate the success and, and uplift women in this space and go, well, sport is for all, not just for some. But it's also about holding those in decision-making positions to account. So where is that money going? What are you doing uh, to push forward for equity, to make sure that we have equal opportunities, equal sponsors, equal investment, uh, equal pay, equal prize money, um, because men and women, we are equal here. And, and actually, we've proven that women are just as good as football and as and at sport in general as men. So we deserve all the things. To, to, to that point about FIFA as well, Colin, I mean, there was an increase of prize money, I think, by about four times the magnitude to the last tournament. But I mean, it still trails the men by, mm. by eons. And FIFA really have been dragged kicking and screaming to this party. And they still 
continue to make completely tone-deaf decisions like announcing an all-male commentary team for their world feed for the tournament. I mean, it's outrageous that every host city got a broadcaster for FIFA's world stream that goes out. They were all men, and they all they were all men with British-sounding accents. So this mm. is what this is what the world of football you know, FIFA imagines it as, you can only hope that this month and, and the blockbuster numbers that they would have got, because don't forget they're making all the money from the tickets and the broadcasting deals, will have opened their eyes a little bit. Yeah, it was interesting that Sky uh, got that feedback after the first Ferns match that, hang on a minute, we've got an alien UK-sounding commentary team here, why not our own? So they put in Jason Pine and former Fern Rosie White as a commentary team for as it turned out, just two more matches, uh, sadly. Yeah, so that is interesting. But, I mean, FIFA also have a reputation as being very restrictive with their rights. We read stories about fans having to, or being forced to delete content filmed inside stadiums. These are kind of licensed events. Is that something that has to change? Or have you bumped up against it in your reporting in uh, any way? Well, I've covered four FIFA tournaments, a couple in Russia and the last Women's World Cup and this one. And, and then the media team match have been quite lovely. And they even put on a little feast for journalists in the last <laughs> match in Wellington. I had nice. samosas and oh, dumplings pre-match. So thanks very much, FIFA. F- FIFA's never had a reputation for <laughs> underdoing the catering for, for its own people. But but in terms of like I mean, I, I the, just, the right to film, to, to move about. Well, uh, I mean, covering Bledisloe tests, I took a picture from the press box of the Hark and I got a big tap on the shoulder saying delete those photos which I think that's the reality of commercial deals but uh, yeah I mean they're licensed events aren't that's they? right not, and not I mean FIFA events. exists because they are such commercial giants I mean I, I had to laugh the other day maybe a couple of days ago when they announced the release of the tender to screen in to broadcast in Australia the next coming World Cups for both men's and women's so they've they've decided this might be an opportune time to go to market with their broadcasting mm. rights in Australia obviously to try and maximise the size of the deal. I mean, this is this is what makes them what they are. They're, they're, they are an incredibly wealthy, you know, top-heavy, bloated, uh, executive bloated organisation in Switzerland. I wrote a story this tournament how Gianni Infantino had been using a private jet to travel around two matches uh, and the Pacific. He, he travelled in the equivalent of, of a lap of the earth doing this. Well, they've got uh, four, four billion US dollars in the bank from their... Uh, expert husbandry of the world's most popular sport over the years. So, you know, they've got to spend it somehow. They do, they do. And I went on Monday night to the Equalise um, side panel discussion panel. Are you there as well, Zoe? It's, uh, I went a few weeks ago. It's awesome. Yeah, and, and Fatma Samora, who's the Secretary General um, of FIFA, sort of squirmed a bit when she was asked about why they didn't dig into these reserves to, to up prize money. Apparently it needs to be done sustainably. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes, you do have to sustain four billion in the bank, I suppose, <laughs> and not just live off the interest. Uh, but Zoe, one mm. other thing uh, about men's football. Uh, coincidentally, this morning, as we're recording this, in RNZ Sports Bulletin, as well as uh, the outcome of the semi-final Matildas Lionesses of England, um, the fact that Messi, Lionel Messi, had scored in the you know, some knockout competition in the States where he's now playing, where no one's really interested in that MLS or that brand new Miami team, but it's because it's him. Mm. In women's football, it's a little different. They aren't quite, I mean, we, we, we're getting star names now from the tournament like Sam Kerr of the Matildas, for example, but you don't have those epic superstars like Neymar, Messi, who become so well paid that it's literally impossible for them to play for certain teams because they 
can't afford them and so we don't have that imbalance or is that is that a downside that we're going to get a superstar structure with all the attention well uh, this is the thing right women have started way back when it comes to visibility and support in football and in fact here in New Zealand and in the UK women were banned from playing football for 50 years so just imagine what we could have achieved if we weren't banned there just hasn't been the visibility that the men have received and I think as the visibility continues to grow we will have these standout players, right? I mean, I think everyone who follows women's football knows Megan Rapino. Yeah. And what she's done, not just on the field, but off it. Yeah, when, uh, when the state's lost mm. uh, unexpectedly, um, even 24 hours later, a story about Megan Rapino uh, was Stuff's most viewed story 20, 24 hours later. But I mean, some of that was because of a downside of this, which is because she's a personality who has commented on issues of equity and other social issues, she attracts a lot of abuse and attention as well. Do you know what? Women attract abuse and attention, (laughs) whether or not you're in sport. It's something that we've had to deal with. It's, you know, many of us, particularly in the women's sport movement, have been lifting our voices and speaking up for decades, and we've been told to sit down and be quiet. Well, we're not going to sit down and be quiet anymore. Um, and, you know, for me, I really hope that this is the start of something new and fresh and exciting. And it's a wave that everyone wants to be part of, not just media. It also comes down to sports bodies giving equal opportunities for women to play sport, because if they don't play, then we've got nothing to cover and they're not going to be visible. But it also comes down to our audiences as well, our listeners and our readers. And one little action can make a huge difference to that wave. So clicking on a story or listening to an interview, sharing that interview on social media, following your favourite player, joining your favourite sports team as a season member or joining your favourite club as a player or a coach or a ref or sitting on a board because every little bit helps this movement Um, and it's exciting times. I really hope that we continue. Yeah, the, the huge numbers in Australia, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about what the legacy of this tournament will be. Mm, and well, obviously, that's, that's where I thought we could end it, like <laughs> what's really going to change? Because as they said with the Women's Rugby World Cup final that you mentioned there, great, but you can only have that World Cup every four years and it's not going to be likely you'll have blockbuster matches frequently or often, particularly, you know, in this part of the world. Same applies to Australia. So, yeah, Ben, do you think it, this really has left the legacy, will change the way the media uh, treat women's sport and particularly this code of football? Yeah, I mean, just trying to figure out, you know, where all of this support has come from. I mean, naturally, you know, everyone loves to get behind an Australian, you know, World Home World Cup, all the rest of it. And, you know, like, first of all, they're winners. Mm. You know, like, we have seen a difference in Australia and New Zealand. And I think a lot of that boils down to the fact that Australia went deep in the tournament, New Zealand didn't, you know, didn't quite have that sort of lift off that Australia got late in the tournament. I mean, football as well as this sort of like latent underdog of the sporting landscape in Australia, um, you know, there are so, and built by off a huge multicultural population as well. So it came out, came out of that. I think there's also incredible goodwill towards women's players because, you know, they had to fight so hard to get where they were. I mean, it was only in the, in the months before the 2019 tournament, we had Australian stars like driving Ubers and like to try and, you know, pay their wages. So everyone loves an underdog. Um, 
but I think also this team, it's because they look like Australians. You know, they, 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 they transcend other codes in that there's people from almost every state of Australia, every corner of Australia, you know, different parts of the community. You know, shock horror, there are gay people in this team as well. They look like Australia. So the fact that they've had this enormous turnout, you know, just bypassing anything else since the Sydney Olympics, it really, it's permission for policymakers and sponsors to invest. So they've, they've always been like that, I would guess, that squad. But the fact that the media, for once, had the spotlight on them as much as it did players in um, uh, rugby league, even union or um, the circular rugby with the funny red ball. <laughs> that one, uh, but that makes a difference, doesn't it? It's sorry, that media what, spotlight. What do you mean, sorry? Oh, the AFL. No, no, no. What, what do you mean the media spotlight makes a difference? Well, because presumably that team was always like that. As you say, they reflect Australia. They look like Australia. But sure. Australia's seeing it because they're hosting a tournament and they're winning yeah. and everything's blown up. So that's the gift. I mean, right? We Australia has been presented a gift you know, and, and particularly women's sport. So, like, now all of the all of the state governments that need to build facilities, they can actually see, and, that, you know, like, now we have this argument. The South Australian Premier came out and said, we're not going to give a public holiday if the Matildas win, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to invest $18 million in local sport because, you know, that would have been the cost and this is what we're going to, this is what we're going to invest in now for, for, for because we've seen it, you know. Mm. And, Zoe, do you think things change now as a result of this? Because it, so we, we, we didn't. We didn't have the winning focus after after day one, game one, and our solitary goal, which is a shame. I hope so. Uh, I hope so. And, you know, research shows as well that being on board with the women's sport movement is a really positive thing for everyone involved. Um, from a commercial aspect and commercial media, aligning with like-minded sponsors, you know, people... Media and and sponsors who engage with women's sport are more likely to be looked favourably from fans, and they're more likely to engage with their content and their products. So, and then we're bringing in new audiences, new markets. We're exposing a whole bunch of new people to women's sport. And my hope is that one day we don't need to call it women's sport anymore; that mm. it's just sport. We're not there yet, but hopefully we'll get there soon. And one, uh, just just to finish, uh, as we said, the quite the messy Neymar Jr. sort of superstars. Mm-hmm. However, one who is a titan of women's football is Marta, who played, I guess, her last tournament. But I just thought it was cool. She was at a press conference where she was quite emotional. and She wasn't to notice of the... I thought it was after they'd been knocked out, but it turns out it wasn't. It was the day before what, what turned out to be the game that that uh, actually led to the elimination. And she made the point, pointed a finger at the media, saying this hasn't just changed for us, the players, mm. over, over her long career. I mean, 20 years she's been an international. She said out there among the journalists there are people there who are able to make careers off uh, and be involved in this sort of thing uh, I think she was the only one I've seen pointed that but there must be an awareness among um, players and, and the sport administrators that it actually has changed yeah. parts of the media too yeah I mean I think we've always had you know one of the things in New Zealand and actually probably it's the same in Australia is that we've got a lack of female journalists in sport um, and often we were the ones driving that coverage dr- wanting to drive that change but what we've seen, particularly over the last 18 months with the cricket, rugby and now football World Cups is that male allies within our teams are picking up and covering women's sport and they're the ones who are taking it forward. So 80% of bylines of women's sports coverage are men. 
So men are now writing about women's sport. It's not just women anymore. So for me, the future is bright and we just need to get that commitment from every single media organisation um, for this strategy of covering women's sport and, and reaching 50-50 equity. Yeah, I would say I was a bit taken aback when I moved here because I, I you know, covered sport in Australia, moved to New Zealand, cover sport on the side of, of my desk, which is you know working in the press gallery. New Zealand press boxes are so blokey. There are not many <laughs> chicks around at all. I can't tell you how many times I've been in a press box and walked in and I've been the only woman. Uh, it, it happens more often than not. I mean, I cover both men's and women's sport as well. Uh, but I must admit, I love being in that environment. The guys always make space for me. Um, we have great conversations, you know, and I look at sport incredibly different with my background, both as a journalist and working in international sport. Uh, and it's it's lots of fun, but, you know, we do have a lack of diversity in sports journalism, and that's for a whole range of reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the travelling press, press pack to cover the All Blacks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But do you know what? What I loved was when I was uh, covering Netherlands, USA, here in Wellington, I went down to the mix zone, and it was just, I think, men were outnumbered by women. It was incredible. Uh, I bumped into a New York Times journalist, and we had a good chat, and it was just a amazing to see the number of female sports journalists covering this tournament Um, but for now it's going to take our male allies in our newsrooms including our sports editors to recognize that it's important to cover women's sport that there is a market for it there is an audience for it Um, and this is how we grow our audience base I'd say as well like the the growth in journalists and and more journalists does also bring challenges for journalists as well like I'm used to like getting yarns by you know just going to the stands and there's a former Matilda there and having a having a chat or or you know lingering around change rooms long enough and you know people are very happy to talk to you that's Sounds a bit creepy. It's really not. It's just sort of standard practice in sports, yeah. sports journalism. But uh, you know, like that, the increased professionalism will also bring challenges too. But like you know, the players deserve it. They've yeah. worked so hard that you know it's time to to up standards and up professionalism in these leagues. That was Ben Mackay, reporter for the Australian Associated Press News Agency, who's based here in Wellington, but will be at this weekend's final in Sydney. And senior stuff sports journalist Zoe George, who specialises in reporting on equity and equality in our sport.